Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 24, and it may be found in your pew Bibles on page 10. After his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a, a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Would you join with me in prayer? Our Father, you are the God of Abram, and you are our God, and we come to you this morning believing that what we need is to hear from you. We need, we need every word that proceeds out of your mouth. So would you please meet with us? Help me, help your church as we attend to the preaching today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. When it comes to making promises, oftentimes our actions speak more loudly than our words. I wonder if you've ever had the experience of someone promising something to you, pledging to do something, and then immediately calling their own promise into question with the way they act. Someone says, hey, I'll do something, but then you, you, you watch them and you think, yeah, I'm not so sure. This is something that happens quite frequently with, with children that I know. <laughs> I trust it happens with children you know as well. A, a request is made to say, clean up the room, and there's a lot of assurances given that that will be done in a timely manner. And then you watch the child walk in the opposite direction of their room. The words were full of weighty promises, but the subsequent happenings seemed to indicate otherwise. Now, it's one thing for a child's behavior to immediately call into question their follow-through. That, that can be a frustrating exercise of patience and an opportunity to instruct on what, yes, definitely, dad, actually means. But what about when it's the promises of God? that seem to be faltering. When the promises that God makes to us seem to be called into question by our circumstances, that's a little more than frustrating. That can be paralyzing. That can cause despair. It can lead you to, to question whether God is really for you in Christ. So what do you do? What do you do when it seems like God's promise to you is threatened? How do you walk when what the Lord has pledged to you seems to be in jeopardy? 
Our text today will help us to know. So let's go together to Genesis chapter 12 and learn how to live when the promise of God seems threatened. We're in Genesis chapter 12 this morning. If you've been with us in our study of Genesis, you know that last week the storyline advanced in a major way. So way back in Genesis chapter 3.15, God promised to raise up a seed, to raise up a Savior, to overturn sin and death. And that promise back in Genesis 3.15 was clarified and enriched last week in Genesis chapter 12. God called Abram from the land of Ur, and he made the spectacular declaration that from Abram, from his offspring, through his offspring, God is going to bring blessing that will undo the curse that came from sin in the garden. The glory that Adam lost, this promise is going to restore. This seed of Abram is going to restore. As Pastor Mitch said last week, that promise in chapter 12, verses 1 to 9, is one of the high watermarks of all the Old Testament. Next week, we'll see in chapter 15 that the Lord formalizes this promise of blessing in a covenant with Abram. But here... In our text today, between these high points of the promise, Abram continues his sojourn, and a series of events unfold that call into question the very promise that God has made. Time and time again, we will see the promise is threatened, and Abram must learn to walk by faith. So the first threat comes in a trip down to Egypt. So look at me at verse 10 of chapter 12. We'll look at verses 10 to 13. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So in the land of Canaan, where Abram had been living, there's a famine. So Abram decides to head down to Egypt because you'll remember the Nile River is in Egypt, and the irrigation from the Nile meant that it was a better place to try to withstand a famine, a better place to go because they could withstand droughts. So Abram decides, we'll go down to Egypt. But Abram knows that going down to Egypt is dangerous. Why? Abram tells us his wife, Sarai, is beautiful. And he fears that the Egyptians are going to kill him to have her. Now, with, with so, as with so many of these stories in Genesis, there's a lot of details we wish we had. Like, how, how did Abram know that? Was that just Egypt's reputation? They always kill the husbands of beautiful wives? We don't know. But Abram, he's got a plan. Because, you see, Sarai is technically his half-sister. We'll learn that later in chapter 20. So Abram's plan is to tell the Egyptians that Sarai is his sister so that they won't kill him to have her. He'll leave the wife part out and just say, she's my sister. Now, Abram's story is technically true, right? And framing the truth in this way might seem to be a shrewd plan. Some interpret Abram's actions that way. They they read that Abram's half-truth is a wise tactic because it will avoid him getting captured and killed by the pagan Egyptians. But I'm persuaded that Abram's plan here is a foolish one. After all, God had promised he would bless those who bless him. He just said that. And he would curse those who curse him. 
God knew how to take care of Abram if there was a threat on his life. And indeed, the Lord's going to demonstrate that in just a few short verses. So instead of acting in faith on what God had just promised, Abram is instead acting like Adam before him, who let his wife deal with the serpent. He puts the burden on her to deal with the problem. But Abram's plan for, for protecting himself and for the, protecting the promise, it quickly falls apart. His fear, his worst fear is realized when Sarai's beauty gets back to Pharaoh. Look at verses 14 to 16. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So Sarai is taken into Pharaoh's harem. And while things do at one level go well for Abram, he's enriched by Pharaoh, now there's a huge threat to the promise. God's spectacular promise was for Abram and his seed, his offspring, his son. And as later texts will reveal, it is through overcoming Sarai's barrenness that the Lord plans to show his power. How is that going to work if Sarai belongs to Pharaoh? Will the promise of a saving seed stand? Look at verses 17 through the first verse of chapter 13. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. So when the promise is threatened, the Lord intervenes. He sends great plagues on the Egyptians such that they realize Sarah is Abram's wife. So Pharaoh calls for Abram. He doesn't even wait for an explanation, and he sends him out with great haste. So we see that even though the promise seems threatened, the Lord himself intervenes, and he brings them out even richer than before. Do you see that? They've plundered the Egyptians. God is for Abram, and he's not going to let this salvation promise through his seed, fail. And Abram acknowledges the Lord's faithfulness. Look at verses 2 to 4 of chapter 13. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the Lord. Abram he returns to his altar at Bethel to worship the Lord for the rescue and for the riches that he was given in Egypt. Abram is learning to walk by faith, not by sight. He's learning to believe the promise that even when it seems to be threatened, it's always secure because of the Lord who gave it. But on the heels of one rescue, another situation develops that seems to threaten God's big promise to Abram. Look at verses 5 to 9 of chapter 13. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. Lot is Abram's nephew, if you'll remember from earlier in the story. Verse 6, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock 
and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. So Abram and his nephew Lot, they run into some intra-family strife. You see, having been enriched in Egypt, Abram's got a massive amount of wealth and possessions. And verse 6 says that Lot's possessions were also quite impressive. He had lots of livestock. And you may have noticed it mentioned that the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. So, so they're in the land too. Canaanites, Perizzites, Abram, his nephew Lot. There just wasn't enough pasture land to go around. And family dynamics are hard enough without your shepherds fighting over pasture land. So Abram makes a, a generous proposal to Lot that's aimed at peace. He tells him, look at the land of Canaan and head in the direction that seems best to him. Abram would go the other way. Pick a region for grazing, and I'll go the opposite way. So let's look at what Lot does in verses 10 to 13. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered, everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So Lot lifts up his eyes, he takes a look around, and he picks the Jordan Valley. And the text tells us that this Jordan Valley was the best of the best. It was watered like the garden of the Lord. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 2, the Garden of Eden is watered by four rivers. And this text says the, the place that Lot chose was a lot like that. It was kind of a mini paradise. And he says it's, it's like Egypt. We, we just saw Egypt is the place you go if you want to be well watered, even in a drought. So Lot really has picked the best portion here. He's, he's kind of got it made in the shade. But the text also goes out of its way to make clear that Lot has made an, on, an ominous choice. In verse 10, the coming destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in this region that he's picked is mentioned. The ominous nature of his choice is also signaled by verse 11, which says that Lot journeyed east to the Jordan Valley. Now, there's nothing evil about the direction of east, but in the book of Genesis, whenever we've seen somebody traveling east, it's not been good. Adam and Eve, they leave the garden and go east. Do you remember that? Cain goes away from the presence of the Lord and travels east. The group that built the Tower of Babel traveled east and found a plain. Now Lot, though he seems to be heading back to paradise, travels east. And as if that wasn't clear enough, verse 13 makes it clear, Lot settles in Sodom, and the city of Sodom is a place of great wickedness. This is all forecasting what will happen in a few chapters. We'll see in chapter 18 when Sodom and Gomorrah are judged and Lot is nearly swept away in the judgment. But here in our, our text today, Lot's choice seems again to call into question the promise God had made to Abram. Had not the Lord said to Abram's offspring, he would give the land of Canaan. But now some of the choicest of this land belongs to Abram's nephew. 
So, so does God's promise to Abram stand or not? As the Lord acted in Egypt, He intervened. He speaks here. Look at verses 14 to 18. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So Lot had lifted up his eyes, and he had picked the best portion of the land, or so it seemed to him. Now the Lord says to Abram, lift up your eyes and look, not just to the east, but to the south and to the north and to the west. He reassures him that all of Canaan will be his, all of it. This is just a fleshing out of what the Lord had pledged to him back in chapter 12, verse 7. But here it's, it's more lavish. It's more expansive. All the land you see, I give to you and to your offspring. All of it. God's not squishy on the promise of place for Abram. It, it might seem for a moment that Lot is the one getting a slice of paradise. But no. The Lord says, it is through you, it is through your seed, I will bring humanity back to the garden. I will rebuild paradise through you, Abram. And the Lord reiterates his pledge to give him offspring, also in lavish terms. He says, I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth, which of course cannot be counted, cannot be weighed. And he commands Abram to move throughout to, to survey the beautiful inheritance the Lord has given to him, even though he's still a sojourner. He, he's still living in a tent, right? But it's as though the Lord says, you know what? Here are the keys to the place. Take a look around. Explore the space. It's all yours. The deed's in your name. I'm giving it to you and to your seed forever. And again, Abram responds by building an altar to the Lord at Hebron. In other words, he responds to the Lord's reassurance with worship. The capture by Pharaoh won't threaten the seed. The choice of Lot won't threaten the land. The promise of the Lord stands. And that brings us to the last episode in this unit. Another threat to God's big promise to Abram. Look with me at chapter 14 and just hang in there. There's a lot of details and a lot of funny names. But we're going we're gonna to make it through together. Look at chapter 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Kedolaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shibnab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidaim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedolaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth, Kanarim, and Zuzim and Ham, and Emim and Sheva, Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to In Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling 
in Hazazan Tamar. Now, just pause right there. I know what you're thinking. What are we talking about here? <laughs> what does this have to do with Abram? And what does it have to do with me? So, so here's, here's the skinny of what's going on here. If you weren't tracking with all of that, I'm sure you were. In the land of Canaan, where Abram is living, you have five lesser kings who rebel against their overlord, a king with the winsome name of Kedorlaomer. Kedorlaomer does not like that these five kings are rebelling. So he, along with the kings that he's kind of in alliance with, move out to put down this rebellion. Okay, that's what's going on. You've got a rebellion against Kedorlaomer. Five kings have, have broken off from here. Let's keep going. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. These, by the way, these are the, rebell these are the rebelling kings. These are the kings who are breaking off from Kedorlaomer. Went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariach, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. So four kings with Kedorlaomer, five kings that have rebelled against him. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their, and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So what's, what's going on here? What's all this about? We've got Canaanite politics, rebellion, intrigue. It culminates with this king, Kedoleomer, the great king, defeating the five kings that had rebelled against him, including, now we're getting closer to why it matters, including the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. So Kedoleomer plunders, he captures the city of Sodom, which if you'll remember is the place where Lot Abram's nephew was living. So Lot is taken prisoner by this big bad guy, Kedoleomer. So it seems as though Abram and his family are just caught in the middle of this bigger conflict, right? This sort of geopolitical tribal rivalry. But then something surprising happens as Abram moves to free Lot. Look at verses 13 to 16. The one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people." So essentially, Abram forms a posse. He, 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 he leads a small army from his own trained men and the men of the Amorites, and he goes far north. He pursues Kedoleomer past Dan, which is the farthest north in Canaan, all the way north of Damascus, very, very far north. And his army makes an attack by night and they defeat the forces of Kedorlaomer, and they bring back Lot and all the people and all the possessions from Sodom. Now, again, there's a lot of questions I have about this that just aren't answered. Like, Abram's got trained men. Where did he learn his military tactics? How did all this come about? 
But here's what should leap off the page to us. Abram, a wanderer from Ur, is suddenly a force to be reckoned with. Among the many, many kings listed in this chapter, he alone has defeated the mighty overlord, Kedor Laomer. And that's because the Lord is fulfilling the promise to make of him a great nation. He's being given glory and honor, and those who oppose him will fail. And the source of this blessing, that it's from the Lord, is confirmed for Abram when he returns from the battle. Look at verses 17 to 20. After his return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So as Abram and his forces are returning from battle, two kings come out to meet him. One we've already met, the king of Sodom. The other we haven't, Melchizedek, king of Salem. Salem, which means peace, is likely an ancient alternate name for the city of Jerusalem. We're not given much background information here on this mysterious Melchizedek. He's got no genealogy. We don't know where he comes from. But we are told he is a priest of the true and living God. He worships and serves God, the one who makes heaven and earth. And this unknown priest comes out to meet Abram with a banquet. He meets him returning from war and he brings a banquet. And as God's priest, he blesses him. That is, he pronounces over Abram the favor of God that had resulted in his great victory. It's because God, the maker and owner of everything, is with Abram that he has been victorious. And Abram recognizes that Melchizedek is a priest and a king of the Lord. So he responds to the blessing he receives with a tithe. That is, he honors him by giving him a tenth of his abundant wealth. And speaking of wealth, this blessing from the Lord through Melchizedek has helped Abram think about how he should, what he should do with this plunder he's just won. Look at his interaction with the king of Sodom in verse 21 to 24. After Melchizedek finishes speaking, the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. He's saying, in essence, give me back the people from my city, but keep the money. You've earned it. But this is what Abram does. Look at verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I should not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. The king of Sodom says, hey, take the wealth. You've earned it. But Abram, Abram says, no way. He's lifted his hand. He's made an oath before the Lord not to take any of Sodom's wealth. His allies can take their share. But Abram wants nothing. Why? Because Abram sees that in the riches of Sodom, there's another threat to the promise, perhaps even a greater threat than the warfare of the kings. And that is that his wealth 
and fame appear to be coming from an earthly, wicked king. That is, he doesn't want his wealth and his fame to appear to be coming from the king of Sodom. He doesn't want his blessedness to appear to to be coming from the king of Sodom. Why? Because Abram wants to be a a self-made man, you know, pull himself up by his bootstraps and all that? No, because he wants all to see that it is the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, who is blessing him, who is fulfilling his promise to him. Do you see how in those verses, how what Abram says mirrors what Melchizedek just said to him? Melchizedek assured Abram with a banquet of bread and wine, and he says, God Most High has blessed you. And now Abram believes that. He's set an oath to God Most High. He believes it such that he gives away a tenth of everything to God's priest king, and he rejects the wealth of Sodom. He's seen how the Lord has provided for him through the dangers of Egypt, through the strife with Lot, through the wars with the kings. And now he lifts his hand to heaven and declares that he will look to the Lord alone for blessing. Abram sees that the promise, though threatened, stands secure. And so he's hitching his wagon completely to the Lord. He's clinging to God's big promise in faith. And if the promise stands for Abram, it stands for his seed too. You think about Moses writing this for his first audience, the children of Israel, This would have been such an encouragement to them as they were journeying to the promised land. They, like Abram, had been delivered from Egypt, right? Great plagues sent on Pharaoh so that they were released from captivity. And they too, with their ragtag army, are about to go out to war against Canaanite kings. And it would have been very encouraging them to to know, to be reminded that God had promised to give Abram all of this land and no Canaanite king would be able to stand before them. The promise stands for Abram's offspring. But more important than his his promise standing for his offspring, the Israelites, this text also tells us that the promise would stand for the seed of Abram, the Lord Jesus. Paul tells us in Galatians 3 that the promises of chapter 12 were made to Abram and his seed, who is Christ. So the promise of Abram rightly belonged to Jesus Christ. Yet like Abram, during his earthly ministry, the promise that God had made to him often looked threatened. Jesus too went down to Egypt and he emerged as a sojourner and a stranger. He was the heir of the promised land of a whole new creation, yet he had nowhere to lay his head. He was promised a great nation, a kingdom over which to rule. His father had pledged to give him all the peoples of the earth as an inheritance. But he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Even his disciples abandoned him in his hour of need. He was promised a great name. He was to be crowned with glory and honor, but instead he was mocked and treated as a criminal He was given a crown of thorns, a wandering, isolated, shamed servant. Is this the mighty seed of Abraham? But Jesus believed the promise. 
He believed it through every threat. He believed it through every temptation. Even when he was told, bow down to me, said Satan, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. He entrusted himself entirely to God, most high possessor of heaven and earth. All the way, he clung to the promise. All the way to the cross, where he died as a covenant breaker in place of sinners like you and me. He endured agony and suffering as a sin bearer, fully convinced that the Father would not abandon him. He endured the cross and despised the shame. And indeed, the Lord's promise stood. Jesus was raised in glory. He ascended to the Father's throne. He received the name that is above every name. He was made the head of his people, the church, and from there he began a reign that will cover the universe. He himself was declared through his resurrection and ascension to be a priest and a king forever after the order of Melchizedek, the book of Hebrews tells us. And and here's where the cash value of all that is for you, brother or sister, Christian. The fact that Jesus, the true seed of Abraham, has received God's promise through all threats, assures us that the promise stands for us. Despite every perceived threat, Jesus has received God's spectacular promise to Abraham, and so will you who belong to him by faith. You know, God was kind, wasn't he, to assure Abram of his promise by sending Melchizedek to set a banquet before him, to bless him, to remind him that God had blessed him and that he needed no other benefactor. But we get a far greater assurance of the promise. We get the one to whom Melchizedek points. We get Jesus Christ who has died, who has been raised and ascended as God's final priest and king. He is the guarantor of God's promises. He intercedes for you. He assures you, with his own body and blood, that your sins are forgiven and shall be forever removed. The curse will be undone. He speaks over you the blessing that God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, maker of the new heavens and the new earth, is for you. Now, I want to be clear. The only way you get the blessing of God promised to Jesus is by belonging to Jesus. The promise of return to paradise with God, of sin and shame removed, of participation in Christ's glory, that's only for those who who belong to Jesus through faith in Him. So if you've never repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, right now you do not stand to inherit God's blessings. If you've never let go of your sins and you've never put your trust in Christ, you do not right now stand to inherit the great promise that God has made to Abram. On the contrary, you stand to receive God's curse. God will not pursue you everlastingly with good, but He will bring on you everlasting disaster. You will endure the torment of the lake of fire forever. So don't reject the promise that God is offering to you even now. Don't pursue the good life another way. Though God's promise appears threatened in this life, it will not fail. Rather, whatever it is you're relying on, whatever whatever you're counting on, 
to get you through this life and into whatever is after it, that will fail, but the Lord will not. Money will fail. Fame will fail. Comfort will fail. Personal security will fail. Those things all have expiration dates. They don't go with you past the grave. But God will remain. Trust His Son and inherit the unshakable promise of Abram today. Now, brothers and sisters, we've already been given a great down payment of God's saving promise already, but we have not arrived home. We are still, we are still walking by faith like Father Abraham before us, like Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We are still walking to the promised land. So, so two ways I think this text helps us to cling to the promise even when, our, even when the promise seems threatened. Two ways to help us walk by faith. First, I want to exhort you from this text to fix your eyes on how the Lord has guaranteed His saving promises, not on the circumstances that seem to threaten it. Fix your eyes on how the Lord has guaranteed His saving promises, not on the circumstances that seem to threaten it. Don't set your heart on the swirling things around you that call God's promise into question. Rather, set your heart on how God has guaranteed it for you through Jesus, Abraham's seed. Now, for Abram, the, the threats were famine. They were a pagan king, a family dispute, local warfare, the temptation of riches. All these things seemed to threaten God's big promise to him. And your life is filled with things that if you look at them, if you dwell on them, if you focus on them, they could get you thinking that God's good promises to you and Jesus are threatened. And you must fight that temptation to walk and, and walk by faith instead of walking by sight. Now, before we think about how that works, how, how does that work that you fix your eyes on what God has guaranteed and not on your circumstances? Before we talk about that, I just want to acknowledge that sometimes the problem is that we're confused about what God has actually promised to us. We think God's not delivering or the, throng, the promise is threatened because we're expecting Him to give us things that that He hasn't said He would give us. It's not the circumstances that are the problem, it's, it's my expectations. I often struggle here. I, I get easily discouraged by petty difficulties that life is not as easy as I want it to be, that it's not as simple as I want it to be, that it's not as comfortable as I want it to be. And the, prom the problem there is not that God's promise has failed. The, pro the problem is that my expectations are for something God's not promised, right? The promise is not under threat. I've just forgotten what the promise is. The Lord's promise to Abraham and his seed is not a cushy life. It's not a new car, new house, no power outages kind of life. I need to remember that. God's promise that's ours in Jesus is a salvation promise. It's a salvation promise. It's a promise that overcomes the sin and death and the devil and all their evil effects. It's a promise that we get to participate in Jesus' great nation, His great name and great blessing as we dwell on a new earth forever. It's a promise that God will utterly bless us with the favor of His Son, that He will never turn away from us, but in steadfast love, He will turn everything for your everlasting good. And that's a really good promise. That's a fabulous promise. Sometimes we can get confused about that. But even if we're clear on what the Lord has promised to us, still, 
Circumstances fill our vision, don't they? They can so fill our vision that we're tempted to lose our way. We start thinking that what the Lord has promised to us in the gospel is actually under threat. I think of sickness and death. There are a few things that rattle us, that threaten us, like sickness for ourselves or for someone that we love. That initial shock of an unexpected diagnosis or an unexpected incident, it can knock you off your feet. Many of you know that. In a different way, the grind of, of chronic pain or prolonged medical treatments and procedures that just seem to go on and on and on, they can have the same effect in a different way. They slowly erode your confidence that the promise of the Lord is true. They feel like threats. Where is the Lord who promised the defeat of death and life everlasting? Did the Lord indeed promise that He would bless me and His Son, that He would not stop doing good to me? Then why is my body acting the way that it is? Why is my child or my parent afflicted the way that they are? Why does pain and death seem to be crouching at my door? It seems like the Lord may not come through here. And you, you can fill in that creeping doubt with a thousand circumstances that might have you rattled this morning. Why is my bank account as low as it is? Why have my children turned out the way that they have? Why does my family treat me the way that they do? In those moments of doubt, which perhaps plague you, do not succumb to the sin of walking by sight. Do not fix your gaze on the circumstances of your life. Do not lean on your perception. Fix your gaze on the Lord's guarantee of His promises to you. He's shown his resolution to bless you by redeeming you, not from Egypt, but from your sins. He freely gave up his son to suffer and bleed and die for you, to bring you out and to give you every spiritual blessing in him. That great intervention, that great redemption of the Lord assures you that he is for you. Fix your eyes on that. Fix your gaze on Jesus, who has been raised to become your great high priest. He intercedes for you and pronounces God's blessing over you. By his own death, he brings you to his banquet table to, to remind you that the Lord will not turn away from doing you good. Fix your mind on how Jesus' work guarantees the very salvation promise you might doubt. Take it into your heart. Meditate on it. So when sickness and death rear their heads, fix your mind on the truth that your corruptible body will be raised in resurrection glory because Jesus' body has already been raised in resurrection glory. His resurrection means that He will powerfully transform your lowly body to be like His. Think on that, brothers and sisters. Think on that as you cough and sneeze and ache and go into surgery and sit in a waiting room, and sit by your spouse's bed. Jesus has been raised incorruptible, and so shall you be. Now, I know that's not easy. That's not easy. It's easy to focus on what's right in front of us. But our great high priest will give us grace to help in time of need, grace to grow in fixing our eyes on God's guarantee of the promise 
and not on the circumstances that surround us. That's a way to apply this text. Another application of this text is to reject hedging on the Lord's promise. Reject any hedging on the Lord's promise. What do I mean by that? Well, well, think of Abram. We saw at the end of this story the opportunity for Abram to advance in greatness through Sodom's wealth. But Abram declares that it is the Lord alone to whom he is looking for the blessings of the promise. He's not counting on any Canaanite king or the whims of his nephew. He's put all his eggs, as it were, into the basket of the Lord who made heaven and earth. He wasn't hedging. You know, just in case this whole Abrahamic covenant thing doesn't work out, I'm going to keep some Sodom money on the side. Now, what about you? Are your long-term bets for comfort and security and your reputation banked entirely on God? Are they banked mostly on God, but also a little bit on money, a little bit on the esteem of others, a little bit on fill-in-the-blank? What are your hopes hedged? That's what I'm asking. What might it look like if your hopes are, are divided, if they're hedged? Well, again, consider, <coughs> consider finances. You know, Pastor Mitch just a few weeks ago exhorted us in our membership commitments that we be giving sacrificially. But if your hopes are hedged, if they're banked mostly on God, but also a little on money, it will be reflected in the way that you give. You may still give to Christ and to His church, but not so sacrificially that it really cuts in to taking care of your own creature comforts. Do you see? It makes no sense to give sacrificially if you're just a little unsure that the Lord will actually come through, that He'll actually have an inheritance imperishable, incorruptible, and undefiled waiting for you. No. If, if you find your heart leaning that way, hedging your bets between God and wealth, you need to repent. Fight that false hope directly by making a giving plan today. It's still January. You know, it's, it's still time for New Year's resolutions. Make a plan today that is truly sacrificial. The kind of giving that only makes sense if you, like Abram, are convinced that the Lord of heaven and earth will meet your needs everlastingly. And the same goes for your reputation, your name, your esteem in the eyes of others. Abram didn't want a name made great by anyone other than the Lord. Are you... Likewise, banking entirely on the Lord for the great name that comes through Christ? Or are you a little nervous that that's going to pan out? So I'm also kind of looking around and hoping people around me will think I'm great. Here's how that hedging, here's how you might know if that's happening in your life, if you're hedging your bets in that way. You might say, I will give allegiance to Christ. I'll go to church. I, I, I'm on board with Jesus but I'm not going to make him known publicly in my workplace or among my family. Because you know, if you go public with Christ, it's not going to win you a lot of popularity. If you keep it private, nobody has to know. But if you're vocal, people are going to call you a weak person, leaning on the crutch of religion, or a crazy person, believing outdated scientific ideas, or a dangerous person, a bigoted person who hates people. But no, don't hedge your bets on a good name from this world. Lean all in on the Lord's promise to give you a great name in Christ. As surely as Christ was vindicated, brothers and sisters, you will be vindicated. 
The Lord himself has promised to lift up your head and welcome you to himself as a co-heir with Christ. You will never be put to shame. So turn away from the desire to be given a great name by the world and instead lean totally on the great name that God will give you in Christ. Repent of that desire for fame, for esteem. Do not fear those who can kill your reputation. Fear God who can cast you into everlasting shame. Do not love the world. Love the Father who freely gives you his kingdom. So whether it's wealth, whether it's your reputation, whether it's something else entirely that competes for your total reliance on God's promise, reject it. Be all in on the Lord's promise in Christ. Because though it may seem that it is threatened now, it will stand forever. May God give us the grace to believe it. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to believe that you have guaranteed the promise. Help us look to look to your Son, the one who has died and raised for our justification, who intercedes for us even now to know that your promise will stand. Help us not to be blown about by things that appear to threaten us. Help us instead to be able to say from the heart, riches we heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou our inheritance, now and always, thou and thou only, first in our heart, high King of heaven, our treasure thou art. May that be true of us from the heart we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.